0: Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. Good to see you guys this morning. And those of you that are joining us online, thanks for tuning in and watching wherever you're watching from. We appreciate it. Um, we are in this series called The Good Life, and we're talking about some of the aspects of the good life. And uh, we talked at the beginning about how the good life is really countercultural, and and then Corbin did an awesome job last week kind of unpacking this idea that it's not so much about uh, whether or not you have money or resources or wealth or even if you would like to have those things. It's just that if that becomes your sole aim, the thing that your whole focus is on, that even if you achieve them... That you won't be any closer to God, and he did this great illustration on stage with a ladder and talked about God's blessing and that we have a God of abundance. And I would just say that if you missed the message last week, I would encourage you to go back and watch it or listen to it. You can go to rlcpullman.com and catch it. He did a, a really fantastic job. I hope he cooks hamburgers today half as good as his message last week, because then they'll be edible. Because this is a really good message. So um, it's going to be, uh, it, it was good. So this week, we're going to try and build on those ideas and kind of start to see that when we're really living the good life that God has for us is when, we, uh, when we're walking that out and living in it, we really start to love people around us at, at our very best. The absolute best starts to come out of us. Love, you see, is not something that we just hang on a wall hanging. It's active. It's something that we do. We put into practice. And this is something that the Apostle John was trying to really um, hammer home to the early church in Ephesus. And the church in Ephesus was, uh, intermixed among a really bustling city. And so Ephesus was large. It was a port city. There was a lot of business and commerce and trade and different influences. There was different religious and, uh, religions and religious practices. And in the midst of all that, there was, uh, young Christians and churches that were putting their roots down and they were facing all sorts of, uh, Counter messages that were against or in contrast to the gospel message. And so John writes the book of 1 John to address some of these things. And just to give you a little bit of a reference, like uh, the Jerusalem temple was destroyed in AD 70, and then about 85 or 90 is when John writes the book of 1 John. And so about 15 to 20 years after the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem. So by the time he writes this letter, the church, as we we know it, or as they knew it at the time, had been around for over a generation. They had survived a lot of persecution, a lot of difficult things, and a lot of hard times. And, and so even though they had toughed it out for more than a generation, they were starting to face some new threats to the early church. And there was all sorts of crazy stuff going on. There were, there were people that presented this idea that Jesus never actually became a man, that he was only spiritual. He wasn't actually an actual human. He was only a spirit. And since they believed that, they presented this idea that started to leak its way into the early church, that it was the spiritual life that mattered, not the physical life. And since your physical body was just gonna die and rot and it wasn't what really mattered, you might as well give it as much pleasure as you could while you're here, right? And so you could imagine the direction then that 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 led people to live. There was other radical ideas being presented that challenged the gospel message. There was ideas that, that, you didn't need to confess your sin and repent and turn from it because the truth is people just aren't inclined to sin. Any of us that have been around any people sort of wrestle with that inclination, right? Like, I don't know, have you hung out with my friends, right? Like, do you know me? <laughs> and so there was these other ideas and they were pushing in against the gospel message. So the culture was pressuring the gospel to shift and adapt and become something that it wasn't. And as you can imagine, John writes to the early church to address these issues. And one of the things that they were really facing uh, that I think a, a lot of us in the modern church can still relate to was just an overall decline in commitment. People were just being pulled away by the voices in the culture and the communities that they lived in. And they were being steered away from the heart of the true gospel message. And so John writes this letter to address all of those things that we talked about. But I think one of the things that I really like that, that I think is helpful for us in our message today is that in this letter, as he's addressing these things, one of the things John does is he does a great job of painting this picture that you can actually know if you're still following the path if you're actually living the good life that God has for you there is a way to know like in the midst of like all these other messages coming in like this is the right way this is the right way or this is the way but you need to tweak this or you should do this instead of this like there's all this confusion and at some point you're like am I even still on the right path I think maybe that's something that people even wrestle with still and so in first John he writes these words that I think are really helpful for the, his early uh, readers, but also for us today. 1 John chapter 3, verse 7 says, "'Dear children, don't let anyone deceive you about this. When people do what is right, it shows uh, that they are righteous, even as Christ is righteous. But when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil, who has been sinning since the beginning.' But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning because God's life is in them. So they can't keep on sinning because they're children of God. So now we can tell who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Anyone who does not live righteously and does not love other believers does not belong to God. And so Paul or uh, John is using some pretty strong words here to paint this picture that you can actually know in the midst of all these competing messages and all this chaos and all these other things that are trying to pull you away, you actually can know. Like, don't don't get so confused. Don't let the water get so muddy that you forget. You can actually know if you're still on the path. And you know because your righteousness, your faith, and your belief in God shows up in the way you actually live. He goes on to hammer it home a little bit more for them and I think he does something that's really important that we don't forget even yet today he he wants them to to remember that the good life that God has for them it's anchored in the sacrificial love of God that's the root like we we can't get away from this is where it starts and it builds out from there. First John three sixteen through 19 says, we know what love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Our actions will show that we belong to the truth so that so we will be confident when we stand before God our actions reveal what we truly believe right like This isn't rocket science. I think we've understood this a little bit in our everyday lives before, but John's trying to help him understand, like in the midst of all this chaos and all this confusion, all these competing messages, we've got to keep coming back to the fact that like the good life God has for us is anchored in the fact that it began with a sacrificial God who gives generously for us. And as he gives generously for us, and he does this amazing supernatural exchange for us where he makes a way for our sin to be forgiven, then John goes on to to tie it to a real practical example. He's like, I know that you know that God is God and God is good and he sacrificed his son and, and somehow in a in a supernatural exchange, it makes a way for your sin to be forgiven. And we can sort of look at that and hold it out here in hypothetical land. Like I get it and, and yeah, I get it and I believe it, but it's still hard to wrap my brain around exactly how that all works. And then John says, let me just bring it really close to home for you. And so it looks like this for you. When you see somebody that's hungry and you have the means to feed them, feed them. If you see somebody that's in need of something, you have the means to help them, help them. He's like, that, that's the practical you version of a God that saw a need in his creation that he loved and, and, and wanted to redeem and restore, and he made a way because he could. And likewise, that's what your love looks like. When you can, you do. And so he gives us this practical connection between the two things. And this isn't a concept that's just isolated to this one story or this one particular time in history or this particular group of churches or believers. This is a concept that's taught throughout the Bible to believers over and over and over again. Like we know uh, very well that you know a tree by its what? We know a tree by its There you go. We know a tree by its fruit. It's sort of obvious. We, we know that Jesus, over and over again, he tied, tied these concepts together when he taught. He said that if you love me, you will obey me. If you love me, you'll do what I say. If you do what I say, you'll love me. And he does this kind of circular thing all throughout Particularly in the book of John 14 and 15, we see those examples in that kind of language a lot. And then Jesus' teaching often would center around uh, loving other people. And even more specifically, he would get in nitty-gritty of like what kinds of people we should really focus on loving. There was an example, uh, a time in scripture where we see a religious leader of the day came to Jesus and asked him, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus did what Jesus often did. He answered a question with a question, right? If you haven't mastered that yet, you need to work on it. It's smooth, right? Always have a question ready for the question. And so the guy says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what does the law of Moses teach? the guy answers he says well you must love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul with all your mind with all your strength and you must love your neighbor as yourself now here's what's cool like I don't know how you guys are when you read scripture but when I read scripture I kind of always get pictures going in my mind I get like a little movie reel playing I am absolutely loving side note rabbit trail I'm absolutely loving the chosen series because it brings to life and gives me a visual picture. Like, having been to Turkey, haven't been to Israel. It feels so right watching that how they illustrate what the Bible uh, could have looked like coming to life. Side note, I, it really appeals to me. For some other people, it might be like, ah, oh, it's weird. I'd rather read it, right? So when I read the text, I get these. I, I get like a movie reel playing. And this particular story, I love because it's one of these ones where I get this idea of Jesus being really. Human and really excited, right? Like he—he somebody comes up to him and says, "What do I have to do to inherit eternal life?" And he's like, "Well, what does it teach?" And he says, "He says, well, you got to do love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, love your neighbor as yourself." And Jesus is like, "Woohoo! Yeah!" Right? He's like, "Somebody got it." I just imagine like maybe he wasn't quite that excited. I don't know. That's the way the movie is in my head. It's not scripture, it's imagination. And so I just, but I just imagine like Jesus is like so excited, like somebody's, he's got it. Like he's got it. It's like, and then he's like, here's the deal. You are You are like this close to actually having the eternal life that you came asking for. You came to me asking for eternal life and then you spit that out as an answer. Like you are so close. Now here's the deal. The only thing you're missing is now just go do what you said. And you do it bam, you've got the eternal life you were asking about. Like, you're there. All you, you got to do is just go walk out what you did. And Jesus is sort of like, mic drop, walk away. Like, whew, fine. Like, yeah. He was like walking away feeling pretty proud about that guy. Like, he got it. Like, that guy's in. He's, he's, he's going to do it. And then the guy's like, wait, 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 wait. I got one more question. I got one more question. Because I wasn't expecting you to tell me to actually. Like, that wasn't what I was expecting. And so he says, it's almost as if the guy is saying, I'm all in to love God with everything I've got. But when it really comes down to loving my neighbor, some people came to mind. And I'm wondering exactly, do they qualify as neighbor? Because I don't know if you've met them, but they're going to be difficult to love. This is the very same thing that every one of us wrestle with on a daily or weekly or monthly basis, people come into our world that come into our lives. Sometimes they're in our family that we're just like, really Jesus? Like some people are not easy to love. And so we find ourselves maybe not literally asking the question, but in our imagination, we're wrestling with, are they my neighbor? Do I really have to love them? And so Jesus tells this guy a story to help paint a picture for him of the, the answer, like, who's your neighbor? It's a story that we find in Luke chapter 10, verses 30 through 37. It's in your notes, and it'll be up on the screen, too. So it goes like this. Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey, and he took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, uh, take care of this man, and if the bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits, Jesus asked. Well, the man replied, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, yep, now you go and do the same. And he just keeps tying it back to this idea that he, he's just reminding and reiterating to this guy in real practical terms. It's awesome that you know the right thing, but it really only means something to me if you actually do what you know. Like, go and do it. That's it. Go do it, right? And in case we're just wondering if this was a one-off thing, was this only for this particular guy? Was this just did this guy just need a lesson in how to be nice to Samaritans? He needed to tweak his worldview on the way he thought about Samaritans. That's not the case at all. This was a, a passage where Jesus was telling a story that was to transcend and apply to all believers at the time and all believers now, still the same. That this is the way. That we love our neighbor over and over and over again throughout scripture we see this concept in the text. Uh, I just threw a couple of them in your notes to just sort of paraphrase some examples to remind us of these ideas of this Active faith that loves with our feet and our pocketbook, in addition to our heart and our mind. Luke 12, uh, 14 12 through 14 says, When you have a big barbecue, don't just invite the people over that'll invite you back over for a barbecue, right? You're like, Oh, I'm gonna do pulled pork because I know he's gonna invite me back for a ribeye. Like, great, that's nice. But Jesus pushes the envelope and says, No, invite people who can't pay you back invite people who may be out of work or don't have any money or are in a really bind or hard time or maybe homeless like get really uncomfortable and invite somebody over for dinner that you know can't pay you back there's a different reward in store for you is what he wants you to understand through that passage. Matthew 25, 31 through 46 is this awesome example where the intent of this little lesson that he's given here is that as believers, we're supposed to tend to the disadvantaged people around us in a way as if we were caring for Jesus himself. And all of a sudden it changes the way you see the person that stands outside of the Safeway with a sign. You're like, oh, How many times would we drive by if we knew that was Jesus, right? Like, it's like, oh, this is hard to, like, actually put into practice. But he says, when you do that, you're doing it for me. And so for us, practically, it's like, let's wrestle with the idea of who do we know that's in jail? Who do we know that's homeless? Who do we know that's out of a job? Who do we know that's hungry? Who do we know that we've seen come to work or school with the same pair of clothes way more often than not? They've got like two shirts, and you know they're always going to be wearing one of them. And you start to put two and two together and realize they probably don't have much for clothes. Could you help that? Could you do something about that? Or do you just notice and ignore it? Another scripture in here that comes along, Matthew 28, 19 through 20, the Great Commission. The idea here is that we're supposed to love the spiritually poor by actually doing something, by literally bringing them the gospel, bringing the good news to people who don't know Jesus, who don't have a hope of a salvation. We bring them the good news. And not only do we just bring them this message, but then we actually invite them to come with us and learn how to actually walk it out. It's not about just that they hear the message and receive salvation. It's that it's it's make disciples and then teach them to obey what? Everything Jesus taught. Well, that's going to take time and relationship and context and circumstances. And so that's this picture of like this love that's active. Matthew 9, 37 and 38 is this awesome picture of a harvest. There's this huge harvest, he says, that is plentiful and the workers are few. The, the, the problem. It's always such a challenging thing to imagine that this is a thing. Like, in farming country, which we live in, to imagine that you have the bumper crop of a lifetime, but you have no way to bring it in. Like, you can only get a third of it in with the amount of laborers you have. Like, you would be on a panic to figure out how to hire help and get them in the field. Because it's like, here's all of this ready, right? Like, that's this picture that that Jesus is painting is like the this harvest there are so many people who are contrary to what the culture might tell you and contrary to what the world would love you to believe and all of the goofy news and stuff going on in the world there are so many people around us that are ready to put their faith and trust in Jesus they just need somebody to help and uh, help them know who he is and how to follow him they are desperately looking for hope but the laborers are few All of these things just keep reminding us and pointing us back to this idea that loving the physically poor and the spiritually poor, it, it involves giving generously of our money, our time, our talents, our resources. I think it's pretty interesting that the Greek word uh, agape is translated love, right? Most of us are pretty familiar with that, um, it's a popular tattoo, even to get that word tet. It's like, oh, this is love. And everybody sort of knows that, even if you're not a Christian, people know that agape means love. What's interesting is that when the Bible translators translate that Greek word, um, 29 times it actually gets translated as the word charity. And so here's what happens. When the translators are looking at the context, when the word agape is used between God and man, and man and God, the word gets translated love because they feel like that's the best English word to describe what's going on. But when the word agape is used in context between people, horizontal, person to person, the translators use the word charity because they feel like that word best describes what's going on. And it's like, it's like trying to hammer home this point that love is inseparable from giving. That love is active and it sacrificially gives like charity. You can't separate love and giving. When we see people in need, when we are touched and our heart is stirred like love is that thing that finds a way to figure out how to help. Where We're just driven to not do nothing, right? Like we're just like, we've got to do something about that. I think it's pretty cool that that we can always keep coming back to this letter in First John. If we're wondering if we're on track, if we get at times where we're sort of a little bit overly bombarded from the culture around us and all of the different messages and all of the different things that are like, here's all the things the church is doing wrong or way the message is off and it's old-fashioned and outdated and it doesn't do this part right and it's done that wrong, and we can sort of get a little bit lost in the muddiness of things and wonder like, wait a minute, I don't even know if I'm on the right path anymore. Like, how do I know if I'm on track? We can always come back. We can always come back to 1 John 3, 16 and 17. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. We can always come back and start there and go, we know what true love is. Like, I know at the heart of the path of following Jesus, at the heart of it, it starts with a love that gives, that sacrificially gives. And so you can start to go like, okay, well, let me just start with where I'm at and what I can see in my own life. Like, am I sacrificially giving? Is there anything that's costing me anything to give of my time, my money, my resources? Like, and if you're struggling and you're like, man, I can't think of the last time that I inconvenienced myself in any way for anyone, then you got to know that is like God's way of giving you the warning light going off on the dash that you're about to run out of oil in your car. And if you do not address something under the hood real quick, it's going to go bad for you. Something's coming that's not good. Like if you're, and this is that gut check of like, wait a minute, I, I say I'm a Christian, but nowhere in my life does it look like I line up with the heart of the gospel, which is the sacrificial love of God. That's like, time out pay attention and so use that passage like always come back to that the good life that God has for us starts with our good God who loves us who provides for us who's generous to us all the way to the point of giving his son for us like Corbin pointed out last week if he won't stop at that what would he not give us What would an abundant God with everything at his disposal not give if he would go to that length? Obviously, we can't give everything away to everybody. It just doesn't work that way, and that's not the picture that Scripture is trying to paint, that we're supposed to just always give everything away. But if we can and we see those opportunities, and God stirs our heart for something and puts our eyes on something, and we don't, we're we're stepping away from the heart of the gospel in a way that's not good for us, and it's not good for the person that we passed by. Over and over and over, we see that example throughout Scripture There's this concept that, uh, I threw this quote in here too, but I I love this concept, is that you can ignore somebody without hating them. But the fact that you don't hate them is not really any consolation to them when you didn't actually help them. It's like, hey, thanks for nicely ignoring me. You're so kind. Right? Right? Holocaust survivor uh, Eli Weissel said this quote, the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. It's like indifference is sort of like love without action. It's like a love that's been sort of numbed and desensitized to hardships going on in the world around you to the point where you, it just becomes passive instead of active. It just becomes Indifferent. That's not the kind of love that the gospel calls us to. That's not the kind of love that is at the heart of the good life God wants us to live. Obviously, again and again, I just keep reminding you, it's not about being rich to be generous. It's not about how much money is in your bank account to be generous. But I do want to point out this. If you are in a position where you are in debt, it does make it really hard to be generous. You don't need to have a lot of money to be generous but if you're negative money it's really difficult to be generous and and so people find themselves even people that are really want to be generous that want to love other people well what happens is all of a sudden some money comes along out of nowhere that you didn't work for didn't earn it just shows up on your doorstep like say a stimulus check weird and And you know of someone that you care about that needs something, like their alternator went out in their car, or something's going on, and if they can't get it fixed, they're not going to be able to get to work. And you're like, I've got the money to help them, but all the money I actually that just came in, even though I don't. Like, it wasn't. I wasn't expecting it. The problem is I owe all this other money, and I was behind on this other thing. And as much as I want to help that other person, you're torn between being generous the way you know God calls you to be generous and being responsible paying the people that you owe because you overcommitted or overspent or got behind. And so then you're in this tug of war. And that's the honest. That's like the person that really wants to be generous. Way more often than not, I think it's just like, like, Hey, I've got this other money coming in. There's, of course I can't be generous. Like, I can't tithe. I can't give. I can't, like, look at all I owe. And so I just want to say, when it comes to debt, I want you to know, as a church, this is something that we genuinely want to help you with. We want to come alongside people in our church family and in our community, and we want to be able to help you get out of debt, okay? We have amazing mentors in our church that will come alongside you and help you do budget planning and kind of assess your circumstances. Where are you at? Get to know you a little bit. Get to know your situation and help develop a strategy to help you start getting on an out-of-debt plan, right? there, I just want to make sure you understand. They're not financial planners. They're not looking to get anything out of it. We have awesome financial planners in our church. First, you've got to have some finances to plan, right? So it's not, there's, they're not trying to get you anything out of it. They're genuinely just Christian people with experience who have been helped and want to pay that help forward to other people because they want you to experience the debt-free life in a way that maybe you probably couldn't have got on your own, right? And so if you're in a spot where debt is a thing for you and you're like, man, I've looked at it and I think I'm doing it the best I can or no matter how hard I try, I never seem to get ahead or I don't stick with it or whatever your deal is, if you're in a spot where you're ready to ask for help, then in your sermon notes, and then for those of you that are watching online, it's gonna be up on the screen, there's a phone number there and you just text the word debt to that phone number. That'll take you to a registration and it's just a simple sign up. And then those mentors will reach out to you and they'll connect with you. But you have to make the first step, right? Like you have to make the first move and say, tap, I'm sick of this. I want help. If you do that, we'll meet you right there as a church in confidence. And as I can tell you this about the the mentors and the people that are involved in this, as much as you're willing to, show up and and do the homework they give you and, and answer the questions they have, they'll be right there with you to walk with you and help you. Because they want you to be out of debt. They want you to be in a position where you can be generous and not burdened by that. And so I just want to make sure you know that. The last thing I want to say about that concept or that little idea is I would say take that little thing out of your sermon notes, cut it out, stick it in your purse or your wallet or your car or something, put it in your notes, in your phone, however your thing is, I am giving that to you as a tool to help you actively love people you know. So you might know somebody that is just always in a bind and they're trying really hard to get out of debt but they just don't seem like they have the tools or the resources or know how to do it. You can go, oh wait, I got something for you. You pull it out and you're like, text debt to this thing. And someone from my church will call and help you get a plan to get out of debt. And then, and if you work the plan, they'll work it with you. How many people do you know want to like spend time with you to make sure that you stay on track and get out of debt? Like, is anybody else offering that for you? Like that's in your pocket to help you love people in a tangible way. All right, moving on. So, I just can't emphasize enough over and over, it's not about how much money you have, right? Like, there's lots of poor people who are generous. There's lots of poor people who are stingy. There's lots of wealthy people who are generous. There's lots of wealthy people who are stingy. It's not about your bank account. It's what's going on in your heart. We see some cool examples in Scripture, both as an individual person and as large groups of people who are generous and are really putting into practice this principle of sacrificial giving and sacrificial love that's like, it's got legs to it. It's active. It's not just, I think about it, I know about it, but they're doing it. We see in Mark chapter two, the story of the widow who gave everything she had. And, and it contrasts with the, some of the religious leaders of the day who are marking out their spices, weighing them on the thing, trying to go like, I need to make sure I give 10% of my salt, 10% of my cumin, 10% of my whatever. Right. And we, and, and he's like, contrasting that with uh, the widow who gave everything she had. Like if you wanted a modern day view of that little scenario, it would be like if you walked out here and a couple of three or four people were circled up around the boxes to give with their checkbooks, and they were having a discussion about, am I supposed to tithe on gross or net? And there was a bunch of debate going on about it, and there was calculators out, and they were trying to nail down to the right, to the last uh, you know, like decimal point, exactly what they were supposed to give. Meanwhile, while that conversation's going on, somebody walks up to the box who's got 22 bucks left in their bank account, and they're sitting there thinking about it, in their heart, if you could see this little inside their heart conversation, it'd be like, I've got my gas tank filled up, I know that's gonna carry me through till pay, Eight, eh? I got groceries. I got that other box of food from Community Action, so I know I'm not going to be hungry. I think I'm going to be okay, and they just give all 22 bucks. That's this picture that Jesus gives us there. A- another cool picture we get in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is... Paul is uh, commending and affirming the believers in the churches in Macedonia. There, This was a, a region of churches with a lot of different small churches, and it was a pretty blue-collar area. Times were tough. There was not an abundance of money there by any means. But when Paul came there, he reported to them back about the the saints in Jerusalem and how they were in need. And it like broke their hearts. Like it it was the sort of thing that like when they heard about it, I think it kind of gave them a stomach ache because they, even though they didn't have a lot, it was sort of like, wait a minute, wait, wait, what did you just say? Did you just say that somebody in our family is hungry? That's not okay. I don't know if we can fix it, but what can we do about it? And so they all just went about doing what they could and all of a sudden, everybody doing the little that they could gathered together and pooled up to be this great offering that sort of blew Paul's mind. He was like, Oh my gosh, like, I did not expect this. And he was just overwhelmed with joy because of their generosity. And it wasn't because he convinced them to give or, or he, you know, gave them a guilt trip to give. He just presented the need and they responded. And then he holds them up like, Man, if we're going to give, like, this is the way to do it. Like, these guys are amazing. How cool is that? What a blessing they are. And he'd love to tell that story. Who wouldn't? Over and over and over. I think one of the things that happens for us as Christians is we hear this idea about uh, walking out our faith, not just knowing it, but doing it—it's not just about love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength. Love your neighbor. It's actually like now go and do it. And the go and do it part is where we get hung up because we have really good intentions. We really want to go and do it, and we we hear a message like this, or some other podcast, or a sermon, or a song maybe prompts a thought for us, and we get really emotionally moved, and we want to follow through. But then, like nothing hits us in the face in the next twelve hours, and then tomorrow happens. And then we get a little bit distracted and then the next day happens and then maybe something sort of is in our peripheral vision like there was one of these little things that showed up but we're not as sensitive, we're not as tuned in as we were like five minutes after the message and not because we're bad people, it's just life. And we we don't notice some of those opportunities. And so one of the things I wanted to do for us as a church is I wanted to throw an opportunity out there in front of everybody and invite everybody into, uh, here's a no-brainer way, everybody can practice putting your faith and your love into action. So here's what we're going to do. In your sermon notes is the details about this and how to sign up for it. Uh, next Saturday, not this week, not not this week. Let me get that straight so I don't confuse everybody. Saturday was yesterday. Uh, next Saturday, next Saturday, this coming up Saturday, we're going to do a Blessing Beds Delivery Day extravaganza. All right? So here's a little history on Blessing Beds. A lot of you know a little bit about it, but we've been going about uh, a little over a year. We've built uh, a lot of beds. We've delivered over 160 beds to kids in our community in need that were sleeping on the floor Um, We have been to so many of these houses, and you go into the house, and you're like, do they really need a bed? I can tell you from firsthand being on probably 98% of the deliveries, yep, they really do. Our heart's desire has always been to meet the needs of the kids, not qualify the parents. It's not about whether or not the parents can afford it. It's about, does the kid need a bed? If a kid needs a bed, let's give the kid a bed. Let's serve the least of these in practical ways where our love shows up in Real terms like a pillow and a new bed set right? And so that's the heart of it. And so we've been doing that. But one of the challenges we've got is we're always way behind on the amount of beds needed. And so even though we've got an amazing team of volunteers, tons of people serving, a lot of people building beds, and God has been super gracious in providing resources and finances and funding and, and like things are working, like no matter how hard we try to get them out, we, sit, we always are like way behind. We seem to always be like 200-ish families on our waiting list. For a year and almost three or four months, we rarely are below that 200 family mark. We know now from this much experience that the average is three beds per family that we deliver. And so if I've got 200 families on a waiting list, that's telling me I've got somewhere around 500 and six, five to 600 beds that need to get delivered to kids in our community. And I'm like, yikes. I got an idea. Let's rally the family Let's give everybody from every different background, age, experience level, an opportunity to practice putting their love into action. And let's do something that's good for us so that we can try it out and be active in our love. And let's do something that's good for our community and good for the kids that need a bed. Because the longer it takes us to get them to, the longer they're not sleeping on a bed. So this delivery deal, we've got delivery team leaders setting up and and getting them trained and scheduled. Um, So you don't need to know anything. I'll just... Put that out there. All we need is your body and your love, right? We need you to just show up, smile, sign up. You'll get assigned to a team. There's going to be all kinds of jobs for all sorts of different skill levels. If you know how to use tools, you'll probably help put beds together. If you have no idea how to use a tool, you'll probably smile and talk to the parents or the grandparents. If you love little kids and you don't mind getting down on your knees and you can actually get back up when you're done, you'll probably be down on the floor playing with little kids, right? There's always a dog, so somebody will have to be a dog lover. Like, this is just how it works, right? So you will, there's all these different places for people to play and get engaged and serve on this uh, on this process. And so then we're going to go out, we're going to serve. It goes all over Moscow, Pullman, Lewiston, and Clarkson. There'll be teams going all over the place that Saturday. And then we'll all circle up and gather back together at the end of it. We're going to have food, we're going to have fire, we're going to have marshmallows and s'mores, and we're going to share stories about how we saw God work. And what happened and what did it do to us? And we're going to share those stories when they're fresh so that we can spur each other on in our relationship with the Lord and strengthen our faith and encourage one another. And we're going to laugh and we're going to tell a lot of funny stories because there's always a lot of funny stories. That's one of the best parts. It's going to be a great time. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.